Welcome to Equisport Radio, your VIP pass to the world of horse racing. Down the stretch they come, Cassidy's digging in at the rail. Beth Baldwin, take you inside the gate, behind the scenes, to the heart of horse racing. Equisport Radio. Get tied on. At 30 to 1 with Angel Cordero Jr. completes the field. 13 years ago, the coaching club was a very special renewal because it was won by Ruffian, and it was the last victory of her career. Charles, what's your first recollection of that great filly? It was in the spring of 1974, Dave. I was working for Frank Whiteley, and Ruffian was one of several very promising three-year-old, two-year-old fillies he had in the barn. We knew she was good, but nobody was really prepared for what she did the first time she ran right here at Belmont Park. She equaled the track record as a two-year-old. She won by 15, and she wasn't even the favorite, but that was never to happen again. She made a career out of setting or equaling track and stakes records, and she was a legend. She won five races at two, five races at three. I was fortunate enough to call nine of her ten races, and they just seem like yesterday, as this does. Stuart Janney Jr. leading her into the winner's circle, the owner there following the coaching club American Oaks, the race that made her the undisputed champion in the record books and in the hearts of racing fans everywhere. It was her toughest victory because she only won by two and three-quarter lengths. Usually, Dave, we saw her winning like this, just drawing off and hiding from the field. Frank Whiteley and Jacinta Vasquez both felt we had yet to see the best of her, that she hadn't really learned to run. But she didn't just beat her competition, she often devastated them. A filly would move the ruffian with everything they had, and she'd just glide away and leave them brokenhearted. No horse ever finished in front of her. Her only loss was dealt to her by her own body. They will never fill her hoof prints in the stretch at Belmont Park. And every time the coaching club American Oaks is run, we will always think of Ruffy. And this is Les Salzman with Scott Miller on the Equisport News radio show. And... The reason we played that very, very special clip is we have a very, very special guest with us this morning, Charlie Canty. Charlie, welcome to the show. Thank you, Les. Thank you so much. Wow, what a trip back in time that was. That That is something I never, ever will be over, and I can still tear right up. So we have to move along here because it still breaks my heart. Oh, I'm sorry, Charlie. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about m- m- more more pleasant things. I think I've spent more Saturday afternoons with you and Frank Wright and, of course, Dave Johnson <laughs> than I spent with any members of my family. Uh, you you guys were the pioneers of horse racing broadcasting, and I remember so many of those Saturday afternoons. And Angel Cordero, who was a regular guest, saying, boy, she was a very good filly. Very, uh, very th- good. Th- <laughs> <laughs> right? Uh, no, I I was uh, I was exaggerating a bit. I I still get choked up. I don't think I'll ever f- forget what what happened and what we went through with Ruffian and and of course that was just before I started doing television. So thank Lord in heaven I didn't have to cover that race. But of course Frank Wright did and Dave Johnson and everyone had to be professional and handle that. But for those of us working in the barn and around her, it was it was a devastating night. I mean. You know, we, we waited and waited for the surgery, and then, you know, the next morning, first thing early, we knew she she didn't make it, and then we all had to go to the barn and get on our horses, and, and Frank just, he cut us no slack, Frank Whiteley. He said, come on, we've got a set to get out, we got to go, and we all got on our horses, and we went up to the main track, and as we're backing up, going the wrong way up to the eighth pole in front of the grandstand, in the infield was the equipment digging her, her grave, where she, she is till now, and... Uh, Believe me, hearing that piece just brought it all back so much. But what an amazing filly she was and how fortunate we all were to have gotten to see her and watch her in her magnificent way. Now, Chelsea, you, you mentioned that you were still galloping horses and then you got into broadcasting. How'd that all happen? 
Well, I was working for Frank Whiteley. This is a story I've, I've told a good many times, but I think back on it, and I think I just never did understand how this happened. But it was very simple. I was at the barn galloping horses for Frank Whiteley right there at Belmont, ruffians in the barn, and all the media connections, um, the publicity people from Naira, from New York Racing Association, would come over to the barn to get an update on when is she going to have her next workout, when is she going to run again. She was, you know, a huge rock star at the time. And a, a fellow who worked for Naira named Frank Tours, he, he would come to the barn every morning, and he kept saying, you know, they want to put a woman on this TV show that Frank Wright and Dave Johnson were doing together, for the Racing from Belmont Aqueduct Saratoga show that you knew so well. And they, he kept saying, you should really go try out. They want to get someone on the show who knows horse racing, and you sure fit the bill. You ought to go over there. You would be good. And I kept laughing. I'd say, are you crazy? Be on TV, not me. No thanks. I'd rather stay here at the barn. So after a few weeks of that, I finally said, okay, Frank, I will go over there. His name was also Frank. I said, I'll go over there and talk to, to Bill Creasy, who was the head of the uh, department at the time. And uh, I said, I'll go talk to him if you'll leave me alone, okay? Just, I'll do it, and then you leave me alone. Never bring this up again. So I go over in my manure-stained boots and dirty jeans, and, and uh, I go talk to this wonderful man who I got to know later very well, and, and uh, he was with all the other networks eventually that I worked with. And <laughs> he said, what makes you think you're qualified for this job? I said, I'm not qualified for this kind of work. I'm not interested in this kind of work, and it's been nice meeting you, and I'm gone. And he laughed, and we sat there and visited for a little while, and I gave it no more thought. And about two weeks later, Frank Wright had to go do a race in California. And they called me up, and they said, look, Dave is going to have to do this show by himself, and we'd really like you to come. Would you come help us out? And I thought, well, I don't know. Why not? What, what the heck? And then I met Dave, who has become my lifelong friend, and he and Frank Wright both were my mentors and my guides. But Dave had to hold my hand and walk me through that first day, that first time on, on camera. And they handed me a microphone. They said, stand over here and look at the camera. I had no clue what I was doing. And that's how it all started, and it went from there. I had fun and, and made eternal friends of, of Dave Johnson and Frank Wright. Well, the chemistry on that show was so tremendous. You know, as a viewer, it seemed like it was three friends just hanging out. And uh, I guess well, that's that's the <laughs> That joke. was the case. And, and, and it came through. And totally then when you the were case. interviewing people, as a, as a young trainer, when you were interviewing people, I would say to myself, boy, they actually know what they're talking about. They're one of us. Instead of, you know, the trip and knock on the Triple Crown type of coverage. But you guys were down to the nitty gritty and really help people learn about the game. Well, thank you. Thank you. That That is a, I've been told that, and it, it's a great compliment to me. I don't, you know, and, and obviously to Frank. Frank was a good horse trainer and a, a most articulate person, and Dave just had such great enthusiasm and presence on camera, and he knew the sport, and it, each one of us brought a little some different kind of element to it, and of course the two of them had been doing the show together for so long, and they very kindly folded me in, and it was fun. We had a really good time, and uh, I thoroughly enjoyed doing it. It was so easy and laid back, and it was right there at Belmont. I'd, you know, I'd work horses in the morning, and then I'd go get cleaned up and get dressed and go to the show in the afternoon, and, and you know, it was it was a gift. It was a gift from heaven. I got to do something I really loved, and and it became my work, just just like galloping horses was. I, I loved, loved, loved riding, and I got paid to do it. And you know, that's what they say: do what you love, and it's never a job. And you came from North Carolina as a kid, right? And what made you want to get involved with the horses to begin with? Were your horse crazy, or? I was. I was kind of born that way, and I, you know, I was a, a, a kind of a caboose child uh, in North Carolina. My two sisters were much older, and they were kind of gone, and I sort of came along as a little surprise late, late in my parents' life. And I just, I don't know where it came from, but I, even as a little girl, I would cut cartoon pictures of horses out of comic books, scotch tape them to my walls. I don't know where it came from, but I was touched with it from the time I was born. And I got to start taking well, riding lessons one day a week out at a little local riding academy uh, when I was about six or seven. I can remember the first time I sat on a horse. I can see him. His name was Velvet. I can see it as plain as day. And I just, it was like 
it was an epiphany. I don't know if a six-year-old child can have an epiphany, but I did, and it set the course of my life. And it went from there, and one thing led to another, and then I started doing a few little horse shows with a little backyard horse that I had that cost a couple of hundred dollars, and that led to knowing a lot of people up around Virginia would go to those horse shows up there. So when I went to college in Washington, I went out to see my friends in Virginia, and they were all galloping horses at the Middleburg Training Center, so I followed them to work one day, and I said, wait a minute, they're paying you to ride these horses? You get paid to do this? And I said, where do I go to get a job? And I got a job breaking yearlings out at Middleburg, and that took me straight to the racetrack after I got through college, which I barely did because I was always cutting class to go gallop horses. Now, what were you studying in college? What was your major in college? <laughs> I was an art history major. I was an art history major, and at least it gave me qualifications to appreciate all the wonderful equine art, art by Stubbs and so on. And uh, so there you are. Never put it to okay. much use. Yeah, I can it's tell funny. you that. So, it was all about horses. No, no all, you know, it's so funny because so many women that I know that have gotten into the, heart, in the horse business or are horse enthusiasts were art history majors. So I don't know. Really? It must be some some brain chemistry or something, right? <laughs> well, here's another one. So now you you started out with the WOR show and then moved to I guess CBS first and then ESPN. Uh, it was CBS first. Um, Frank Wright was Frank Wright and Jack Whitaker, who's also a lifetime friend. God love him. Um, were both doing the CBS broadcast. This was before they had linked the Derby, Preakness, and, and Belmont together into the Triple Crown that went as an entity to one network only. At the time, ABC did the Derby, and then I think they did the Preakness too, and then CBS did the Belmont, and so it kind of, there was a lack of continuity. But Frank Wright and Jack Whitaker were doing those two, were doing all the CBS shows most of which were only in New York. They did the Belmont, they did the Travers, they did some of the fall racing. So it was right there in my backyard because I was living there and working at Belmont at the time, and I kept thinking, oh, I'd love to do one of those network shows with with Frank and Jack. Oh, that would be so great. And lo and behold, CBS finally invited me a couple of years later to do the Travers at Saratoga, and it was the year that Jatsky won it. Um, So I think it was like 70 six or seven, I'd have to look it up. And uh, so I started doing the shows at CBS, and Bob Fishman, who still still is with CBS to this day, he does the Final Four basketball and everything, and he, he um, and Frank and Jack and I all became great friends. Also, Mike Pearl was there at the time. He later was at ABC. So anyway, I was at CBS for, oh, I don't know, six or eight years, and then they packaged the Triple Crown and put it up for bid uh, to the networks, and ABC won out over CBS, and so when they started doing the Triple Crown as a unit in 1986, I wound up getting a contract from ABC to do that. In the meantime, I had started doing some of those ESPN shows, the Racing Across America, that I did with Dave Johnson, and those all went along simultaneously. I didn't go from one to the other. I did I did them side by side, the, the ABC shows and the ESPN shows. And, so there was kind of sometimes I would do two sets of shows in one afternoon. And when you were with ABC, then, you were working with probably one of the consummate guys in the industry, Jim McKay. Oh my gosh, yes, Jim McKay was there, and Jack Whitaker came over from CBS. And um, it, working with Jim was was just magic. I mean, but as we all know, he's a legend, and his his gift with words were. It was just extraordinary, and he could paint a picture for the opening of the show, of the Derby or whatever race it was, and we would we would preview what he had done and, and, and in the truck, you know, for rehearsal, and you would see it, and it never failed to make me cry. Here I go again, talking about crying. But his words were so eloquent, and he, he captured so much because he loved the sport so much. He loved horses. He had a beautiful farm there in Maryland. And he raised horses, and he loved it. And his passion showed through in every word he ever spoke on camera at a racetrack. And you wound up in Maryland, am I correct? I did, yes, yes. When I decided I wanted to try my hand at training horses, which I'd 
always worked for someone else. And when Joe Canny and I were married all those years, and I watched him, and I watched Frank Frank uh, Whiteley, and I, I, you know, I I had so many opinions about what if it, if I were training, here's what I would do. And finally, I thought, well, let's just see what you can do. And so I was going. Um, I had to spend a fair amount of time in the spring at, at Pimlico anyway because we would do the Preakness. I'd go a week ahead of time. Then I'd do the Preakness. Then I'd stick around in those days. The Pimlico Special would come later. So I was living in South Carolina in Camden at the time um, where I first started galloping horses for Frank uh, Whiteley. And I was breaking yearlings and sending them off for other trainers to send them off to, uh, to the track and get them ready to go to the track. And finally, I had uh, a handful of horses, and plus Frank Whiteley had given me an old, a horse that had been bowed that was a gelding of his, and I had them all there, and I thought, the, the one particular owner who owned the two-year-old said, well, look, why don't you take them? You can train them. And I thought, okay, I'll do that. And it was Dr. Uh, Dr. Jay Arman, who now trains his own horses, you know who he is. I mean, he's won some pretty yes, good races. And he left. Uh, he and his wife left a couple of two-year-olds with me, so I took the the little bowed horse and another little horse that I had picked up for a few dollars. I took the four horses with me when I went to go do the Preakness. <laughs> so I got stalls at Pimlico, and I took these horses up there. And, and um, a few weeks after the Pimlico Special was over, I was stabled right there at Pimlico, and I won my first race right there at Pimlico. And uh, with with a horse that had to be exciting. Oh, it was fabulous! It was fabulous, <laughs> and I, I, I'll never forget this. Thing. Lord knows he's gone now, but one of one of the great horse trainers of all times and great characters of all times, Dickie Small, and he was of course stable there at Pimlico, and and I got the honor of getting doused with a bucket of water in the winter circle by Dickie Small. So there you are, when I won my first race. There, there you are. And, and that would not surprise me from Dickie. <laughs> uh, he was <laughs> he great. Was horse. So funny. He, I'll you're tell right. You. you know, and those characters, you know, unfortunately, time passes on, and there's fewer and fewer of those type of guys around. But you you probably experienced so many people like that. I did. I did. I mean, you know, <laughs> racing it was. And still is, I'm sure. Although I'm, I'm uh, quite an arm's length away from it now, and I don't, I don't know the new up and comers like I used to. But oh my gosh, when you think about like a Woody Stevens and a Charlie Whittingham, those—I mean, people were just amazingly clever and sharp and funny and and fearless, and, and they were just so fun to be around. And you know, Charlie would always threaten to butt heads with you, and Woody would tell you about his five Belmonts and his gold watch, and you know, I mean. You, and their, their quotes and their lines live on to this day. But, you know, I, I, I'm sure that there are great, and I love so many of the people, but they're much more buttoned down now, you know. And and, uh, and the whole communication has changed now. They, the horses have websites and trainers have, have you know, are, are doing a lot of things digitally when con- communicating with owners by, I don't even know what all, I, you know. But no more phone calls. In my day, there used to be, Self, uh, of telephone booths at the racetrack that they put chains around during racing. They would lock up padlocks exactly. at the telephone booths. Telephones were not allowed in the stable area. Could you imagine Todd Pletcher trying to train his string or Wayne Lucas with no telephone in the stable area? I mean, come on. It was the dark ages then, I guess, but it, it seemed so much more colorful to me and, and just so much more character. I don't know. No, I remember one day trying to get into the jocks room 15 minutes before the first post and literally being escorted by security down the steps. And and so the world has changed drastically. uh, But at the end of the day, the horses are still the horses. And and you mentioned you're at arm's length. Do you follow the game still or? Oh, of course I do. I uh, and, for, and one of the things I didn't get much done with the packing boxes this past week watching Royal Ascot. I couldn't tear myself away from the TV, but I do. I, I try to read the Thoroughbred Daily News most every day. I don't always get that done, but in the height of the season, you know, the pre-Triple Crown, pre-Breeders' Cup, Saratoga, Keeneland, I pay pay a lot of attention. I keep track of my friends' horses that, that run and then horses that they bred and everything. 
But even the people who were directly involved, uh, I have a good friend who's a longtime breeder and owner, and she tells me, she said, I don't even know half these people. I mean, you know, it, it's just, it's changed so much. Um, but that's what happens. You know, everybody gets a little older and retires, or, you know, and then their, tra- their assistants come along, and then you learn the assistants, like when Todd Pletcher and, and, and uh, all of Wayne Lucas's team. All of those guys were young right. assistants. Well, now they have their young assistants are now taking out licenses, so I've begun to lose track. It's a little like pedigree. You know, I used to know all the pedigrees, and the expression is, as the, 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 the bloodlines get further and further down the line, we say the pedigree goes off the page. <clears throat> so a lot of times the pedigrees that I right. used to know are now off the page. And then, of course, when the Arabs came in, they named, you know, they named all their horses very unusual names in, in Arabic that I couldn't follow, so I lost that thread of pedigree <clears throat> but it's uh, it, you know nothing stays the same and everything moves on and I just like to remember the way it was when, when we were all there no, it's it's funny because we're in the same age bracket and you you start looking back at things and you say boy it was it was better or different or whatever but the great thing about it is that the game still continues forward you know, well, it back does. in the seventies and eighties, we were afraid that it wouldn't be. Well, you know, it was funny because um, one of the things, as I was telling you earlier, that I was looking back over some stuff, and the, my first year at Belmont Park when I went up there to to stay for good was nineteen sixty eight, and that was the year Ford Pass got the Derby from Dancer's Image over what Butazolidin. I mean, yep. what a what an introduction to racing that was for me. And then, and then Fort Pass comes along and wins the Preakness, and then everyone's in a dither about, well, if he wins the Belmont, what do we do? Is he really a triple crown? Of course, he didn't do it, as you remember. But I mean, think about that. Butazolidin took a Derby away. I mean, that's that's a lot of change, a lot of change. And it wasn't that many years later that it was legal. But boy, oh boy. So. Yeah, a lot of things have changed, um, and I keep well, thinking and, back about all In those days, you could race in Lasix in New York. Oh no, no, that, it came way later. I mean, when when did it? I mean, I'll never forget being so sure that Ali Sheba was going to win the Triple Crown. I was a avid, avid Ali Sheba fan because he stood on his head in the stretch at, at, at the Derby and and won anyway. I thought he was a pretty great horse, and I, I nobody could convince me that he wouldn't be able to win in New York um, without Lasix. And yet there was no Lasix in New York at the time, and he did not win. Um, and whether whether that's a direct result or not, I don't know. We saw many a horse that just comes up short in the, in the Belmont for various and assorted reasons. Um, and I certainly saw plenty of them in the very beginning. You're in my age bracket. I mean, remember Cannonero? Remember Spectacular exactly. Bid? I mean, the... That was a that was a real lesson. All those horses that really taught me a lot. Now, do, are you still around the horses at all? Do you ride or? I ride some when I can. Um, we, my husband and I, Doug Davidson, we've been living in Annapolis, and we got into boats. We both really always wanted to play with boats, so that takes up a lot of time. And we were mostly with sailboats, so. And then to get to where I could ride, I would go up to Moncton to uh, to Tommy Voss's. God bless Tommy Voss, who we, we've lost. Uh, but he is going into the Hall of Fame pretty soon, which is wonderful. Um, I would well go deserved. up there and ride a little bit, or I'd go over, over to Middleburg or over to Front Royal, Virginia, where Wayne and Susie Chatfield-Taylor have their farm, and we'd just go hacking through the woods. I did a little fox hunting for a while, but... Without doing a lot of riding all the time, it's not the smartest thing to do. You just go out and go fox hunting one day when you're not dead fit. So, um, no, I don't ride much uh, anymore, and I do miss that. That's probably the one thing that's missing in my, my happy happy life. And, frankly, we've just recently moved to a place that does have a little riding nearby, so I'm going to be able to just go hacking in the trails, and that's all I want to do because nothing will ever take the place of all again, the right? thrills I had on the back of a horse. Uh, Charlie, it has been a pleasure having you on the show, and just listening to you, it's just such a delight. And uh, I want to <laughs> well, thank, thank you for you all that so you've much. done for the game. Oh, thank you. What the game did for me, it's more like it. And 
God bless the horse. Thank you for letting me reminisce. That was really fun. and It was great talking to you. Same here, and hopefully you'll join us again on the show. Absolutely. Thank you. Take care and good luck unpacking. And we'll be back after these Thank words so much, with Sasser well. Hill. They are superstar athletes, but they don't ask for more money or go on strike. They bring their best every time they play. They are great thoroughbreds, retired, and old friends. And here's commentator turning for home in the Whitney with a three-length lead. And here's commentator to win the Whitney again. And boy, he did it with some front-running style today. All commentator wants is a peppermint and to hang out with a couple of his pals, like Eclipse Award winners Hidden Lake and Sunshine Forever, or even a Breeders' Cup champ. Prize the surging Sierra Roberto toward the inside, a driving finish in the turf, and here's the wire, and it is prized! Many of the past superstars of our sport are still running around. So come visit them at Old Friends in Georgetown, Kentucky, or at our Bobby Frankel division, Old Friends in Saratoga. I know they'll be glad to see you. Go to oldfriendsequine.org or call us at 502-863-1775. When you head to a horse sale, either looking to buy or sell, you really don't know what's going to happen. In the blink of an eye, horses can leave the ring undersold or overpriced. But what if there was a better way to ensure a fair market price for both the buyer and seller? Here at the stable, this fall, we're offering just that. We offer the ability to see your yearlings hard at work while giving you a better chance to make informed decisions that are calculated, not spur of the moment. We'll also provide in-depth commentary from our trainers, blacksmiths, and veterinarians on how each horse is progressing. Dense fog enveloped the backstretch at Saratoga Racecourse that morning, leaving the Oklahoma training track virtually invisible. Still, I could smell its sandy dirt and sense the expanse of the mile oval stretching away from me. Jogging along the gravel path that paralleled the track, I shoved my hands deeper into the pockets of my jacket, hugging the black denim tight around my ribcage against the dawn chill. Out on the dirt, the pounding of hooves drew closer, the sound muffled in the moisture-laden air. Beyond the rail, the horses flying past me were ill-defined, almost ghostly. The sudden, deafening crack of a handgun was neither muffled nor poorly defined. My years as a Baltimore street cop left no doubt what I heard. I stood still, eyes and ears straining. Ahead, someone screamed, Oh my God! I raced forward. The high-pitched wails of a woman grew louder. As I drew close, I could make out her thin figure, her pale face staring at a form splayed on the ground at her feet. The acrid scent of gunpowder floated past me. The coppery stench of blood was unmistakable. And that voice, Sasser Hill, who's just joining us right now on the Equisport News Station. Sasser, welcome aboard. Hi, I'm, I'm honored to be here. This is fun. Thank you. Well, we're honored to have you. And uh, Scott Miller is... <laughs> back in the studio with us after an emergency run out out to the barn area here at Sunshine Meadows in Delray Beach, Florida. Wow. And uh, Sasser, I've got to ask you a question, okay, at the very, very beginning, okay? Okay, hit me with a do shot. The people in your, okay, do the people in your house sleep with one eye open? Because with the mysteries that you write, things have to be pretty exciting around your place. They are in my head anyway. Um, I don't know so much about in the house. Okay. I started reading some of your books a while back, and, you know, where, where do you come up with Nikki and Fia? You know, this is some pretty good imagination. Well, I'm a writer. That's what we do. We, we kill people for a living. We make things up, and um, that's what we do. <laughs> it's just... Uh, and, you know, if you spent a lot of time on the racetrack, you have met some very interesting, dubious characters. I mean, it's inevitable. They're, they're out there. So I'm sure you've met one or two. Have you not? Uh, I have. You know, Charles and I were just talking in the last segment about, you know, how things have changed a little bit and the characters. But the standing joke in my, my house, my wife is an artist. And so 
for most of her life, she's been around very refined people, right. you know, and they're drinking the finest wines and champagnes. And then she comes around my friends who are opening their beer bottles with their teeth. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah, racetrack's a little bit different. Yeah, it is indeed. It is indeed. But, I mean, there's some of the coolest people you will ever meet in your life and the most real um, I, I grew up in a world where I was sent to private school and I went to all the, the right places and knew all the right people, but um, some of those people are so deceitful uh, and, and duplicitous that I find the people at the racetrack to be refreshing and wonderful. I really do. Well, most times at the racetrack, you get what you see. You know? Oh, yes, you do. And, you know, <laughs> Yeah, and sometimes you don't want to see it, but you you know it's there. But it, it uh, you know, is. having been on the backside, and that's one of the great things about your books. I have to tell you, you know, so many people write racing mysteries and racing novels, and you, as a horseman or a horse person, you're sitting there saying they've never been to the backside of a racetrack. True. When I yeah, read your I, stuff, I, I'm in the stall with you. You know, right. You're you're, do, you're 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 speaking the language. Now, did you work at the track? Well, um, I got my first. I bought a broodmare in 19, I think 81, and I was determined to bring along some of her babies. And I ended up with two broodmares, and I ended up being a horse breeder in Maryland, which I hadn't really expected, and fairly successful. But when you don't have a lot of money you you know you try to work a deal with a trainer and you go there and you help out and you hot walk and you you know you do whatever you need to do to make it all happen so i was at the track all the time and i i did everything there is you can do for years so yeah i would spend a lot of time on that back stretch and i used to help walk you know walk the horse over to the other side the whole the whole deal so yeah i know it so you got shavings in your shoes I did. Oh gosh, yes. And then the cook—you'd have to try to wash off your sneakers. It was, was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> so some of life's crisis, and, yes. and the whole time, did you want? Did you? Were you an author before you got involved with the horses, or did horses kind of bring you to this? Or well, I always loved to write. I was always very good at writing in school. It was always my strong point, and I wanted to write a novel, um, but. That came after the horses, and, and once I had spent all those years with the horses, and as much as I loved Walter Farley and Dick Francis, I thought, gosh darn it, I can do this. I'm going to do this. And, you know, I mean, I had such an education in the horse world that it was kind of easy. You know, I didn't have to do any real research. It was all right there in my head. Or I could call people, you know, at the truck and say, what did we call that thing, you know, when we used to put that weird bit on the horse because, you know, you couldn't hold, oh, yeah, right, that was a such and such a bit, you know. So it it worked out well. It really did. Now, and, and it comes through in your writing. The other thing, and you mentioned some great writers, you know, especially Dick Francis, you know, and the big difference, I think, in your writing and some of those guys is that your books don't all read the same. And oh, well, one, one of the things, you know, it, 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 it's really very noticeable. So when I read Dick Francis, I know that you know, there's going to be a situation. There's going to have this happen, that he's going to get injured or beaten up. And then somebody's going to get kidnapped. And then he's going to be in love with somebody. <laughs> uh, that doesn't, doesn't necessarily work in, in, in the world of Sasser Hill. So can can no. you tell us a little bit how you develop your characters and, and your stories? Well, I kind of think I, I use myself because there's a lot of me in both of those gals. And um, it just, I, I often thought, you know, what, what would I do? Um, well, I'll just give you an example. There was one time, I, my trainer back then was Barry Wiseman, and there was one time when he, um, I had caught a chicken at Laurel Racetrack, because I always like chickens. And there was this hen, and I, I grabbed her, and I, I said, Barry, um, before I grabbed her, I said, lock me in this stall here with this hen. You know, I'd shoot her in this stall, and he shut the door so I can catch her. You know, and he, he thought I was an idiot. But anyway, I caught her, and um, 
Barry having the sense of humor that he has left me in there locked in with this chicken for a very long period of time. And I finally got my hand through a hole in the door and waved, and some woman came along. And I said, help, I need to get out of here. And she opened the door, and she looked at me, and she said, what are you doing there with that chicken? And and what I thought about was, well, what what if she hadn't opened the door? What if a guy with a knife had opened the door? And I knew that a woman at the track had been knifed to death last month. What would I do then? See, that's how my brain works, and that's how I come up with the characters. Well... Why don't why don't you tell us a little bit about Nikki? Nikki? Okay, I like Fia, but I like Nikki better. Yeah. Oh, but you don't know Fia well enough yet. Wait till you read the next book. <laughs> okay. Um, Nikki, Nikki is me. If I had um, had as much trouble as she had, you know, had such a terrible childhood and such a tough life, um, and she's very brave. And tell probably. the listeners a little bit about it. T- tell a little. Yeah, want to tease them into buying the books. So tell us a little bit about Nikki's problems when she was a kid. Well, um, I finally wrote the prequel to the series, which which shows you um, Nikki is a 13-year-old when her her mother died and left her in the hands of a pedophile uh, stepfather in Baltimore, and she had to run away and in, uh, in the middle of the night, and she climbed the fence into Pimlico Racetrack and managed to find a new life for herself on the racetrack. Um, So, you know, it was kind of like running away to the circus, um, and and the people there helped her and looked after her, which is the way people at the track are. So, I, you know, I just imagined what that would be like, and and it just became real to me. It became, Nikki became a real person. So that's how she was developed. Because I think all of us, you know, like when we're little kids and stuff, and we get mad at our parents and we quote, run away from home, you know, you run away from home, maybe for an hour. Um, we've all sort of had that experience of, of what would it be like to be abandoned as a youngster. You know, you, you kind of pretend things. So all that stuff's in, in, in my memory, and, and it all just kind of worked out. I hope I'm making sense here. <laughs> no, you, you are. You, you're, you're making perfect sense. Or maybe I'm really weird and I understand it. I don't know which one. And you're, uh, you're definitely weird. <laughs> it's one, one or the other. <laughs> probably the latter. But, uh, you're probably weird. Uh, yeah, I probably am. At least people around me think so. Uh, now, let's talk. Let's talk about Fia, because that, that's a little bit different. Yes, Fia is different. She's older. She's wiser, um, and she has real law enforcement experience because she was a cop in uh, Baltimore, uh, West Baltimore, which if you know, remember anything about Baltimore, that's a tough, tough area, West Baltimore. And uh, she, because her father was murdered, her father was a uh, trainer at Pimlico Racetrack, and he was murdered and murder was never solved. And he was like the best thing in her life because her mother walked out on her um, for a richer man and left her with her father, who she adored, and but he was killed. So she has a lot of anger issues, abandonment issues, and she became a cop because she she's a vengeance, you know, seek justice, make things right. You know, that's, I think a lot of people spend their adult lives trying to figure, you know, fix the things that were wrong when they were young. So that's what she does. And it makes her too, it, it, it makes her a little bit, um, over the top in being angry and, and you know. She crosses the line quite a bit, right? I'm sorry? I she crosses that. the line a little bit. Yes, she does. She does you know, indeed. She, 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 she makes her own rules sometimes. Yeah. Um, she's more likely to, to pick up a gun and pull the trigger than Fia, I mean, than Nikki was able to do. Because Nikki was younger and a little more tender-hearted than Fia, I guess would be a, a good way to put it. Now, do you think she'll, she'll get tougher as she gets older? Will you do more Nikki? I do want to do more Nikki, um, if I can. I think it's just that, you know, it's it's hard. It just takes a long time to write a book. Um, but I, I think I probably will. Oddly enough, right now I'm working on a, on a story about the Irish-American travelers here in the area where I live because they're such a fascinating, odd culture that I thought that'd make a great murder mystery background for these... And, Irish-American gypsies that we have down here. 
so you know that's what writers do they just keep looking for, for ideas and things that will um, be very tantalizing and entertaining for people um, now where, where do you live now I now I moved to Aiken South Carolina after being in Maryland forever I moved to Aiken because I don't know if you know anything about Aiken but it's 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 horse heaven down do. here it is just wonderful and I love it and um, you know, we sold the farm, we sold the horses, we just sort of got out of the business after the crash of 2008. Things were really tough. So now we're down here and we just love it. I mean, everywhere I go, there's horses. So <laughs> it's nice. Well, you know, Charlie just moved from Annapolis to uh, Camden. So I guess oh, there's a migration. Me? Now, oh, I yeah, know now Aiken down think, here. Yeah, no, just this, like in the last two weeks. Uh, so there's that migration. But, you know, in Aiken, I think there's a rule that you have to cram the houses with dogs. And then once the house is filled with dogs, then you go and cram the barn with horses. Is that correct? It seems that I hear way. That right? Every other car that drives by has a dog with its head looking out the window, smiling with its tail wagging. That, that's Aiken. And, yep. um, no, uh, yeah, and we have three it's a great place, tracks. though. Yeah, three racetracks within the city limits and the 2,100 um, acres of pine forest. That's the Hitchcock Woods. It is all horseback riding trails with, with jumps put in, maintained by the city. It, it's like a miracle for people who love to ride. No, it, it's it's a very cool place. And the downtown there is really nice. You oh, know, that is. little historical area. It is nice. It is. Now, get, getting deal. back to your books, because you how many... You've done what, about eight or nine? Um, let's Equine see. Histories? I have four Nikki Luttrell books, and I have completed two Fia McKee books. The second book, which actually is what I was reading uh, that takes place at Saratoga, comes out next spring. And Flamingo Road, the book that takes place at um, down in Florida at Gulfstream Park, uh, that's that just came out in April. So that's, you know... And, and it's doing well, so I, I hope that um, people will give it a try. You know what's so cool about books is you can kind of read, uh, you can get a sample for free on Amazon and, and find out whether you like something or not without wasting your money. No, a few of my friends, you know, well, because what we try and do on this show is a little bit different than most other equine shows. We try and bring people not, well, we've had quite a few Hall of Fame trainers on the show, but we oh, bring yeah. people from other lines of the industry. And Which so one great. of my friends, a couple of my friends actually, said, why don't you get that woman Sasser Hill on on the show? Because we read her books and we don't know her. So <laughs> that we, we have the opportunity to get you on. So tell us a little bit more about you. You told us about Nikki and you told us about Thea. Tell us about you. Well, I think my, my life is echoed in my books because when I was 16, uh, my father died, and it, which was kind of a huge shock. And there was a wonderful, wonderful gentleman um, who's deceased now. His name was Alfred H. Smith Sr., and he had um, wonderful steeplechase horses. I sold horses for Yeah, and he had a, a thoroughbred champion. He was um, champion steeplechase horse uh, twice. And his name was Tuscalee. That was back in the 60s. So this gentleman took me under his wing. His whole family um, took me into their hearts. And they gave me horses to ride, and they taught me everything I knew. So I think that's why you see these women that, you know, are kind of without fathers. I mean, it's what I write about. And finding other people who, who you know, support them and, and rate, lift them up and, and make their lives, you know, real lives and not just... Uh, empty places. So I, you know, that was me, and you know, I finally I got married, and we moved to my family home, uh, which was called, it still is called Pleasant Hills. It's on the National Register. It's an historical home in Maryland, and I'm a direct descendant of Governor Ogle, who brought Queen Mab, the first racehorse, into the United States. So it was in my blood. Um, yeah, so when, when I got married, you know, I got bought this broodmare, and the next thing I knew, I had a breeding farm. I mean, it was it was really funny how it all worked out. And you've had a couple of nice horses. 
I did. Um, I had several nice horses. The best one that I bred was named for Love and Honor, and he won um, over 400000 running in New York. Um, and I had some nice fillies. I, I bred a couple of nice fillies. Um, one was Honor's Quest. She did well. And another, uh, I picked up a Not for Love mare. I bought a Not for Love mare um, named, uh, what was her name? It was one of those love horses. Anyway, she she did very well. But the one that's in the book, that the current book is actually a, a mare I picked up uh, named Last Call for Love. And she was not winning or doing anything for 5000 They couldn't do anything with her. She wouldn't train. She was impossible to train. And uh, I bought her, and uh, we using a pony and a round pen and whatever we could do to get her trained, we, we trained her, and she would she would run and win. She ran a race at um, Colonial Downs and went in 123 for seven furlongs, which is pretty good time. But what she would do is we would tell That's the jockey, good. yeah, it, we, we we'd tell the jockey, you can't whip this filly. And the jockey would get on her, and she, she had all this speed, and she'd go to the lead, and he'd get excited and start hitting her, and she'd stop running. Well, my favorite race was when um, this one horse passed her, headed her and passed her twice, and then the jockey would finally realize, i got to stop hitting her. And then she'd surge back to the lead, and then he'd get excited and hit her again. She won by a whisker, literally by a whisker. And it was, you know, after that, we both went to the bar and had drinks. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you have to. God. Which is sometimes that's the best part of racing. Oh yeah, you you better believe it. When you win, you have to drink. That's fun. When I won my first race, and I, for I, a lot of my friends, when they lose, they have to drink too. But well, I that's know a that's the whole great thing story. about racing. That's the great thing about racing. There's always an excuse to drink. <laughs> Spoken like a true Marylander. Uh, yes. Yes. Oh, well, listen, they drink down so, here too. They drink like fish in Aiken. It's it's uh, it's kind of nice. <laughs> it's kind of, you feel at home, right? Yeah, yeah, I do. I because there's a lot of people that came down here from Maryland and New Jersey and New York, and um, it's an interesting town because every other accent is southern, and every other accent is like from you know uh, mid Atlantic, Northeast. Well, you know, we're down here in Florida. Well, the show actually, you know originates typically from Wellington and uh, so we get a lot of people from up north and they wind up back in Aiken and we call them quarterbacks because Aiken is about a quarter of the way back to New York so oh, that's funny yeah uh, it is you know it, and it, it's a, there's that path there again and again in the show world and polo world Aiken has become such a strong community Yes, it has. A lot of polo fields here, a lot of polo is played, and endless, oh, there are so many show arenas here, horse shows. They have horse shows all over the place. I mean, I haven't even been able to count. Uh, I counted, but one time I sort of tried to count, I counted six big places where they have large, you know, good horse shows, and I just gave up, because there's so many of them. It's crazy. Yeah, no, it, it's a great place if you're equine involved. Yes, uh, it is. Or if you like so, golf. Now the next, uh, uh, I'm sorry? Or if you like golf. Everybody here either is horses or golf. Not, not a bad combination. Yeah. Matter of fact, horses, horses, golf, and you said a lot of bars. I, I yeah. think, don't they call that paradise? Yes, I think they do. Okay. <laughs> I think tell, you're right. Tell us a little bit about your upcoming Saratoga book, because we're getting to Saratoga season, and then we'll let you go. Okay. Um, well, that book is really fun. Um, Thea goes to Saratoga because there's a, a trainer up there that's, you know, winning way many more races than he should, and he's been under investigation for years. Um, he's always getting days, and then they let him right back in, so... Finally, the Thoroughbred Racing Protective Bureau has been sort of hired by um, Naira because they want to finally get the goods on this guy and get rid of him. So that's her, her basic job. So she's up there trying to figure out, you know, what is this guy using? How can we get rid of him? Um, but there's, uh, and then there's a young jockey that she, she worries about because when I, uh, when I went to Fair Hill and met with the president at the time, um, 
of the Thoroughbred Racing Protective Bureau, he told me, he said, just imagine these young um, Latin jockeys that can't speak a word of English, and their families are still down in Nicaragua or wherever. And um, think what kind of force can be put on them to pull races or, or you know, do all kinds of illegal things. And we, we have no control over that. We can't even talk to them, you know. And I thought, wow, that's something interesting. So I kind of pulled that into the book, too. You know, it, it's so cool that you're doing real firsthand stuff. And the readers, I'm sure, appreciate it. I know I appreciate it when I'm reading your books, and uh, sometimes you scare the willies out of me. But other than that, uh, I, I find them pretty amusing and interesting. Oh, thank uh, you. Thank again, you. There, there is Sasser, humor in those. Thanks for I'm joining you us. That. Oh, you, you were so welcome. Thank you. And uh, ho hopefully when the n next book comes out, we'll get you on the air again. That would be terrific. I really appreciate it. Great. Scott, any last questions? One quick question for you. Do we see any books made for TV? Because well, that's the next step. I, I'm that's so my question to you. <laughs> I would love it. I would love it. Um, but Oh, I, I tell you what, I think that's that, that would be a good series and something that anybody could watch. Scott's thinking Hallmark already. He, he, well, he, he sees that on Hallmark as a Hallmark series. So That would be terrific. We'll, we'll, We'll see if that happens. He... Well, you you don't have to twist my arm. I'll do whatever I can to make that happen. Oh, that that's that sounds good to me. It was nice speaking with you. Keep writing the books. Thank you. And, Thank you, Scott. And Sasser, thanks again for being on the show. This is Les Salzman signing off for this edition of the Equisport News on the BBS Radio Net Network.